thank you everybody. Thanks for having us. Um, I think just before I start, I'd just like to tell you something you already probably know, I hope you know, is what a great man Gary is. Um, and I'm serious. I, I have been in church life for several years now. I was pastor of the church when I met um, Gary. We were leading a little tiny church in Four Marks. I'd taken it over. I was a firefighter at the time. I've been in the fire service for 23 years now. Um, so I've done that whilst doing other jobs, as most of us do in the fire service. Um, I was leading a larger church in Alton. Then I took over this little church. But I've got to say, you, you get to meet lots of people as a church leader. And you get to meet lots of church leaders as a church leader. And you, you get to meet lots of pastors. And I've got to say, Gary is probably what I would call a true pastor. He is a real man of God. He is a heart for people. And I've had, as you can imagine, lots of people come and go in my life. Um, and this man just won't let me go. <laughs> he is he's brilliant. He, I'm rubbish at keeping in touch. I'm not great at even keeping in touch with my wife. Um, but Gary, just, he just keeps in touch with me. He, I won't message him for ages. And he'll be the one that gets in touch and says, Let's meet for a coffee, same place. We even have Christmas lunches together, just the two of us. Um, he is brilliant. So, Gary, I just want to publicly, in front of your folk, thank you for being what I would call a true friend and my pastor over these last few years. So, God bless you, mate. I really appreciate you. Um, so, Gary's asked, you, asked me to come and share um, a little bit of something that Linda and I and my family went through last year. And I've got to say, last year was probably the very worst year of our lives, and almost the best year as well. It's one of those really weird years. Now, as a couple, we've been through hell and back quite a few times. We'd been married a year, and my mum died, who I was extremely close to. Then, not long after that, we had a miscarriage. I'd moved up here without Linda. We were trying to move away from Wales, trying to escape. I was trying to rescue her and drag her out. Um, she was still in Wales. I was here. And we found out the horrible news that she'd had a miscarriage. And it was just, it was just heartbreaking. Then, several years after that, we lost Linda's mum to cancer. A couple of years after that, we lost her dad to the asbestos form of cancer. So we've, we've been through it. We know what it is to face loss and difficulties. And we know what it is to really pray and seek God and almost not get the answer you want. We know that, and we've felt that. So last year, um, I've got four daughters. Um, I often describe my house as like a... Um, <laughs> I've got to be careful here. It's almost like a, a soup of hormones. I can walk in from work, and it's like treading through all these hormones. It's, it's like a battlefield. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's tough. Feel for me. Pray for me. We've still got three daughters living at home. Um, which is, I love it, I've got to be honest. If I, if I could keep them all at home forever, I would. Um, we've also got a little grandson, he's four, so I have a little boy in the family now. Um, I get to go and watch football at last, which is brilliant. Not that girls don't do football, my four girls did nothing sporty ever. Um, they were into hair, nails, and makeup. Um, and that's, that was it with them. So that is us, that's our family. So last year, it was about Christmas time. Um, daughter number three, Sophie, 19 years old. She'd started to feel really unwell. 
Um, we've put it down to COVID. We've put it down to sort of just being run down. She missed most of Christmas. We left her in bed. She sort of came down, saw us for a little bit, and then went back up to bed. I was the typical sort of dad, pull yourself together. What's wrong with you, girl? Um, take a few man-up pills, and we'll be fine. She battled on through, um, and she kept on going. She kept on going to work. She was doing long, long hours. She was working at Costa at the time, um, and, and she just kept going, bless her. Then it got to about February, and she crashed again, like really crashed. She was off work for a week, high temperature, struggling, couldn't get off the sofa. We just thought she was just doing the same thing. She picked herself up and got back into work again. But then, I think it was Friday, 31st of March, just before Easter. I was at work, I was on a day shift. I knew she'd stayed home, because yet again, she'd stayed home feeling really unwell. She'd come home and just sort of collapsed on the sofa. No energy at all. And her temperature was high again, and I thought, this is silly. And I left her, and I'd come to work, but I was just really concerned about her high temperature. And me and Linda were sort of texting each other. She was at work, I was at work. Who's phoning the doctor? And we'd managed to get the doctor to phone her, and the temperature was about 40 degrees, so it was getting high. Um, doctor said, yeah, come in, we'll do some checks. He, so she went up, got some blood checks. I think you went home, didn't you? Took her up to the doctor's. Did some blood tests, sent them off, sent her back home, and it was on like that. Then about four o'clock-ish, four or five o'clock, he said, no, I'm concerned. There's some markers come back that we're not too happy with. I think you needed to get to A&E and just get her checked out properly. So I got away from work early, managed to get someone to stand in for me, got home just as I got home. Linda was getting home, and the three of us rushed off to Basingstoke, lovely Basingstoke Hospital. Um, <laughs> And we went in there, and again, I've got to be honest, I thought I'll be home soon. I didn't think we'd be staying, I didn't think anything of it. I thought it'd be some really strong antibiotics, and then we can get on our way. We were sat in the little waiting room. This young student nurse came in and did the usual sort of checks and obs, and, and she looked at us and looked a bit concerned. She said, I'm not going to keep you sat in here. I don't like what I'm seeing. I'm going to put you in a little side room. So again, you think, oh, okay. And we were put in a little side room. And then we were waiting, another doctor came in, and they took some more bloods, and it just felt like ages we were just sat waiting. Eventually this consultant, a female consultant, came and saw us and closed the curtain and said, look, she said, I'm really concerned. I think we've got a bit of an uphill struggle here. I think Sophie's really unwell. Um, we're going to admit her into our, our um, intensive care department. And we were just like, what? She said, yeah, we think she's got something called HLH. And this consultant said to us, whatever you do, don't Google it. Um, but that's what we think she's got. We're going to run her upstairs. We're going to make her comfortable. And we're going to do lots of checks. But it's going to be a bit of a, a battle ahead, I'm afraid. So we were just like, oh, right, OK. So the first thing I did, the minute she left the room, yeah. I Googled it. Maximum life, three months. I couldn't believe what I was reading. This really rare blood disease. I didn't know what to do. I, didn't, I couldn't tell Linda, but I think she could tell by the look on my face I'd read something not too good. So I quickly put it in my pocket, and you try to play the sort of, it'll be fine, it'll be good. We went upstairs, they made her comfortable. Um, and they just kept doing checks, didn't they? 
They left us, she went in on that Friday night. Um, I couldn't stay. They wouldn't let both of us stay. Linda stayed in a chair. They wouldn't give her a bed. Um, so they put her in a little chair next to Sophie, and they just kept running all the normal obs. They weren't giving her any medication for anything. They didn't really know what to do. We didn't see the consultant again, and it just went quiet. And that went on for all weekend, onto Monday, into Tuesday, and still not hearing anything. We didn't know what was happening. Then they decided to take her off the intensive care unit and just put her on what they called the Wessex ward, which was almost like a little private ward. They were just gonna put her in a room there. And again, we weren't getting any answers. Then the consultant that we'd originally seen who came under a professor down in Southampton, this Professor Davis had decided that he wanted her down at Southampton so he could see her properly and start doing something. So they made the decision that she would be taking an ambulance all the way down to Southampton now. This was on Wednesday. So she'd been in on Friday. We're now on the Wednesday. She'd admitted into Southampton, and she was taken into the teenage cancer ward. Again, all really strange, but it's a lovely little room. They put her in there. Linda now had a little bit of space as well. They still wouldn't let both of us stay. And of course, they're really strict. I mean, the nursing staff were amazing but really strict, obviously, because lots of the teenagers there were on chemotherapy. You had to be careful about who was going in. We had to have regular checks and masks had to be worn all the time. Um, so she was in there. And then eventually on that Wednesday, sort of late afternoon-ish, wasn't it, this professor came to see us, Professor Davis. Big, jolly chap. Um, he became, I think my Linda actually fell in love with him. Um, <laughs> He was one of these just, you know, someone just has this presence. He just, super intelligent, um, a beautiful way with him. He had such a calming influence. And he sat us down and he said, don't worry, I've dealt with this before. I know what I can do, and I'm convinced we can get Sophie better. At that point, you just, I became really cocky. You know, you're sort of, yes. We've got this. And suddenly the weight's just lifted, isn't it? And I, I thought, we've, we're here. We're safe now. And you just wanted to hug this man. He's got us. And he told us about what the plan was going to be. He was going to start this sort of, some medication in the next couple of days. He just wanted Sophie to settle, um, get some obs sorted. And then the plan would be he was going to order this stuff, and we were going to get started in the next few days. Um, so that all seemed really good. Sophie was sort of settling, and we were staying in there. I was traveling up and down, going back and forth. Um, and then it came to Friday. So this is now Easter weekend. So it was Good Friday. I'd been down all day, left them Friday evening. Through the night, Sophie became really unwell. Her stomach suddenly bloated, and almost, Linda described it, she looked pregnant. And she's only a, a little thing anyway. And her stomach just bloated and went rock hard. She was on and off the toilet all night, just in a lot of discomfort, um, and just was not good. Linda obviously raised this with them in the morning and throughout the night, saying, look, this doesn't look right. Next morning on Saturday, so Saturday morning, they were really concerned. They weren't quite sure what was happening, so they took Sophie and rushed her into for some scans. And it... I think I was at that point looking, this doesn't look good. As they were taking her, they were taking a crash team with her. 
And they'd already talked about taking her back into intensive care. And you're just thinking, hang on a minute. What's, what's going on now? So she went in for the scans. She went in and they scanned her and checked everything. We weren't told the results straight away. And they took her straight from that room, straight up into intensive care in Southampton. She was wired up to everything. At this point, they were trying to put um, pick lines in. They couldn't get any pick lines in because her veins were all collapsing. Her, her arms were, had gone like purple. I've got photos of them, they're horrendous. From there down, it's just complete deep purple. The nurse said they'd never seen anything like it, both of her arms. They struggled to get a pick line in. They said they only had two, two chances. I think in the third, I was getting so annoyed. I said, hey, try that one. And this nurse, she said she'd give it one more go, and she managed to get this pick line in. And they got a pick line in her. So anyway, there she was, laid up in intensive care on Saturday. Again, we didn't really know what was happening. We thought, well, this is just maybe precaution. Everything seems fine. I think it was about 3. Was it 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Something like that. I can't even remember the times. One of the consultants and the professor said, we need to sp speak to you and Linda. So we left Sophie with the nurse in charge. And they took us. I remember it was the longest walk. They walked us out of intensive care, down the corridor, across another corridor, and down another corridor, and took us into a little room. And they sat us both down. And in that room was Professor Davis, the chief consultant for intensive care at Southampton, and another um, consultant. So we had three consultants. They told us that they'd had the results back from the scan. And her, her bowel wasn't getting any oxygenated blood, and it had started to bloat. They'd spoken to the um, operating theater. They'd rushed them up, and they said that they couldn't operate. There was nothing they could do because she was, her blood had become so thin. She was at the point of dying, and they said to us, you need to gather the family. We don't think she's going to make it tonight. So we had to phone our other daughters. And we all rushed and had to go and say goodbye to her. So Saturday night, I had to watch my other daughters saying goodbye to their sister. It was heartbreaking. Do you know, as a, as a dad, you, you live your life thinking you can protect your family. All I've ever thought I could do was mend things and make things better. That's what dads do, isn't it? I was supposed to be the strong one in the family. But this time I was, I had nothing. I'm not ashamed to say it, but I had nothing left. I had literally come to the end of myself. I thought, I know how this ends. I know what it was when I prayed for my mum. I had so much faith back then. I remember when my mum died, I thought she'd raise up from the dead. That's how confident I was. Never happened. I remember praying for Linda's mum and dad, thinking, they'll get well. You watch my big God. And we buried them both. I thought, this is it. And I tell you what, I did pray 
Well, no, praying's wrong word. I pleaded. I was begging with God, please don't take my daughter. You beg and you beg and you beg. I was begging, take me. Anything, just please, not my girl. I had nothing. God did speak to me. Blew me away what he said. As I was praying and I was crying and I was begging, the one thing I felt deep within me was God say to me, but I love her more. But I love her more. I've already died for her once. I love her more than you ever will, Simon. Not saying that made it feel any better. It made it feel worse, if anything. It wasn't the answer I wanted. I wanted, yeah, I'll heal her. Yeah, I'll make her better. There was someone in my family, though, that wasn't quite as big a mess as me. And that was Linda. Sometimes your greatest heroes are right next to you. They stand by you in life and you don't even notice them sometimes. I thought I was the strong one. How stupid was I? Our real warrior was in the family for years. I never even noticed her. The consultant said to us, you need to tell her she's going to die tonight. You need to tell her she's not going to make it through the night. She's 19 years old, and she has to know the truth. There might be things she wants done. She was still talking. She was still in her right mind. There might be things that she wants done. The consultants followed us in the room, the professor and the consultant of A&E. <laughs> my Welsh warrior wife went over to my daughter because there was no way my Linda was going to let them tell her. That's a mum's job. And Linda said, no, I'll tell her. I'll tell her that she's not going to make it tonight. And Linda held her hand and cuddled in close to her and said, look, love, it's not going to be good. They've told us you're not going to make it through the night. And if you don't make it through the night, you know where you're going. Now, this is with the consultant, the professor, and the nursing staff all stood in this room, listening to what was being said. Linda said, you know, when you go to heaven, you'll see your grandparents They'll be waiting. You'll see Jesus. But most importantly, we'll see you again one day. But then Linda said, but God's not finished yet. We're going to pray that he heals you. We're going to pray that Jesus makes you better, Sophie. And Linda started praying. And she prayed a warrior's prayer like I've never heard before. She prayed in front of all of us that Jesus would heal Sophie. After she'd finished all the words that she could sum up in her own head, she started to pray in tongues, out loud, in front of a professor of medicine, 
in front of her nursing staff. And she prayed in tongues with her hand raised high, honoring our God. Praying that his will be done over our daughter. I was a mess. You could find me in the corner, weeping. We watched and saw our daughters. Do you know what? I, one of the, there's some, I, I probably haven't got time to tell you all the amazing, incredible things we saw happen. We've been hurt through church. My, my girls have seen me being battered by church folk, as sadly happens as pastors. It's not intentional. It's just what happens. We get battered about as pastors and families. That's why I implore you, please, look after him. Look after his wife. Look after his kids. Treat them better than your own. Honor them all the time. Because it damages us. My kids have been damaged because of church. And it's horrible to see. I've got four daughters. Daughter number two is almost like my faith warrior. She reads her Bible daily. She is like, I've never seen anything like her. She's incredible. The other three, I thought they'd all turned their backs on God. We've never forced them to go to church, but we, they sat and, maybe that was the problem, they sat and listened to me preach most weeks. <laughs> but you think they're lost to it. I watched every single one of them pray for Sophie. They came in, and in front of nursing staff, they too prayed like Linda did. They prayed, and they spoke in tongues, and they read scripture. And these were my girls, and I was just thought, Lord, this is incredible. Everyone said what they needed to say to Sophie. Then they got to a point, it must have been midnight-ish. You could tell that they wanted me and Linda really out of the room. Probably just to sort of do some checks. I think they were a little bit nervous about what might happen next. They asked us if we wouldn't mind leaving. They'd got a little room for us, just on the ward, around the corner. Would we go and wait in there? And they'd come and call us when it was time for Sophie to be really knocked out. Their plans were that they'd let us know, then they'd sedate us so much that she wouldn't know what was happening, and she'd drift away. I think they wanted to get things ready. So they sent us off into this little room, and there was no windows, were they? It was the darkest, pokiest little room I've ever been in. There was a sofa bed that we just pulled out. We stayed fully dressed, and we just led on it, waiting for the door to knock so we could go and say our final goodbyes. We didn't sleep. All night, I could just feel Linda sh shaking next to me. I stared at the bottom of the door all night long. So the light was coming in, and you could see, could see shadows going past. And every time a shadow went past, I thought, they're coming. They're coming. And I'd hold my breath, and then the shadow would pass, and Okay. Five hours went by. We couldn't take it anymore. We thought, this is ridiculous. It was now like half five in the morning, and what is going on? It was Easter Sunday. We got up, brushed our teeth, 
and rushed back onto the ward. We walked in and there was Sophie, smiling, chatting to the nurse that had been looking after her all night. We thought, what is earth going on? Didn't know what was going on. They gave Sophie the um, nurse in charge for the day. This American nurse, incredible. She did not miss a beat all day. The day went by, nothing changed. They were giving her lots of blood and then the blood would just drain out of her. They'd give her antibiotics and that would just drain out. Her body couldn't hold anything. All every few hours, and it's just constant. I don't think I've watched a monitor like we were just obsessed with her monitor. Nothing changed. It came time for the, that nurse to end her shift. It was 8 o'clock at night. She turned to Sophie and said, Sophie, when I came on duty this morning, you were the sickest person in intensive care. That's why they assigned me to you. The sickest person. We'd, we'd walk, we had to walk past people that were tubes that couldn't talk. At least Sophie was talking. But this nurse looked at Sophie and Sophie, you're not our sickest. You're now about third down on the list. We thought, what? We, we didn't know what was going on. They still didn't give us any answers. This was just weird. So again, we stayed. You stayed with her that night, didn't you? They wouldn't let me stay. I went and stayed somewhere else. Came back Monday, and Monday morning was another weird day because Sophie then suddenly said she wanted something. She felt hungry. Now, we'd been told that the bowel was just dying. So we, we panicked. We didn't know what to do. We quickly ran and asked the sister in charge, well, she's, she's asking for food. And she said, well, if she wants food, just get her what she wants. So we asked her, what do you want? McDonald's. <laughs> she wanted a Happy Meal and ice cream. I have never been so happy to have Deliveroo. <laughs> and I've never run so fast through a hospital looking for Deliveroo. She took a few mouthfuls of a burger and she was sat eating some ice cream when a consultant that had sat us down on Saturday afternoon, he'd finished his shift and he was back on duty. He walked in to see Sophie eating some ice cream. He opened the door, laughed, and said, I wasn't expecting to see you today. And he walked out. They were scurrying around. They weren't sure what to do, were they? They then said to us, look, we don't know what's going on. We weren't expecting this. But if Sophie can hold some of the stats, if she can hold some of the stuff we're giving her, if by Tuesday she's still holding it, we'll start some intensive chemotherapy, which will kill everything in her body. And she might have a chance. We didn't eat or hardly anything, did we? We were like zombies till Tuesday, watching every little bip and every little thing she was given. Tuesday morning, she still wasn't good enough. We had churches everywhere praying. People telling us, we're praying, we're praying. I remember telling Sophie, and one of the things that really struck her was she just burst into tears when we told her what people were saying. One of the things she'd also been struggling with was anxiety and some of her mental health. She, she'd got to a place in her life where she thought nobody really loved her. She was also going through a, a time where she had an abusive boyfriend. She'd been interviewed by the police while she was in Basingstoke Intensive Care 
because of an attack that he'd done on her. So all this was going on at the same time. And she just burst into tears when we said, we've got this message from this church miles away. They prayed for her at spring harvest over Easter weekend. God's good. Got to about 4 p.m. on Tuesday. Professor Davis was coming round again just to do his checks. He looked at Sophie, took the checks. He looked at us and he said, let's go for it. The cancer nurse rushed up with chemo. She was on standby. By 4.30, she'd had her first dose. Seems a funny thing to celebrate your daughter being given chemo. But it was what she needed. But God had already done the miracle. So the journey went on. I won't go. It was like that then for several weeks. She was in intensive care for a whole week. I had the horrible thing of having to shave her head. She lost all her hair. How long was she in for? Five weeks in the end? So she was then taken back down into the teenage cancer ward. And she was in hospital for five weeks. What it turned out was this HLH had jumped on the back of glandular fever that she'd got at Christmas. So this poor little thing, she'd been fighting glandular fever, going to work. She'd taken those man-up pills quite well. And then this HLH had jumped on the back of it. And what it does is it kills all your red and white blood cells. So she had nothing left. The chemo then comes along and wipes it all out, and then they can start building her back up again. She has regular checkups now, so she's been going monthly. But when we got the all clear, <laughs> Linda again, she couldn't help herself. She had to tell Professor. In fact, it was whilst we were in intensive care, wasn't it? The they, they started to use Sophie then a bit of as a... They, because they couldn't figure out what was going on. He brought in a load of students one day, seven of them. So poor old Sophie sat in this intensive care with the professor and all these other students, all with notebooks and pens and monitoring her. Because it's so rare, they've not seen it. They didn't know why she became so ill. They couldn't figure it out. And they certainly couldn't figure out how she got so well. Until Linda told them. She said, God healed my daughter. She said, Professor, you're a really clever man. God has given you a gift but Jesus healed our daughter. And even he acknowledged in his own way that someone bigger than him had stepped in that day. So that, there were so many little things, so many little answers to prayer. They said she was never going to get home for her birthday. And she got home for her birthday. And that was, they said it's weeks off before she can go home for her birthday. But she came home after like three days of them saying it. It was just, she just went on this incredible journey of getting well. And God has been so good. So, so good. Um, lessons learned. I think for me, the biggest lesson is how much God loves us. And if, if you can take anything away from this today, is, yeah, it'd be good to pray for people that are, are ill. But I don't think that was the big lesson that God really was trying to get across. 
I think God was trying to show me something. I think he wants to sell you something as well. There is nobody, nobody who will love you like he loves you. You're loved more by him than you are by your own husband or wife. He loves you more than your own mum and dad. And just think about that for a minute. He knows your darkest secrets. He knows your worst choices. He knows all those bad decisions you've made. All those secret thoughts that you just don't want anyone to know. The things you're ashamed of. He knows all of that. And he still whispers to you, I love you. I love you. Completely and utterly. And like he told me, I've already died for you. I've already paid the price. I love you completely and utterly. I think we'd live our lives a little bit differently if we truly, truly, truly grasped that. And I mean really grasped it. If you really lived your life knowing that you know that you're loved by the creator of heaven and earth, what a difference it would make. You wouldn't need to look for anybody else's approval. You wouldn't seek love from your partner or from your parents or from your work colleagues. Why? Because you'd be so secure in him. I thought I was losing Sophie. I was never going to lose her. God had already got her holding her, tight in her hands. I thought no one can love my girls like I do. As parents, I bet you do it as well, but me and Linda, I love her more than Linda. She'll tell me she loves her more than I do. You do, don't you? I, my, my love for my girls comes nowhere near God's love for them. He knows my Sophie inside out. He knows her deepest fears. He's closer to her than I ever can be or will be. He's there with her in the darkness of night when she's scared and she cries out. I'm not. I know what, he knows what makes her tick, what makes her scared. He knows her dreams and her ambitions. I might have known him when she was four or five. God's the same with you. No matter what age you are, he loves you. The other lesson I learned is don't underestimate people in your lives. I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say that I'd almost underestimated my wife. I thought I was the strong one. I thought I was the, the man of God in our house. I'm the fix-it man. I'm the strong one. What a load of rubbish. 
I have a new hero in my life. And her name's Linda. She's a prayer warrior. And the way she stepped in was just remarkable. So husbands, let's honor our wives. Let's not underestimate them. Because there's something about a mum, isn't there, that you just, the enemy better look out. So I'd like to finish. Just There was something me and Linda were given when we first got married. It's a verse. There's a passage, isn't it? It's a psalm. <coughs> and if I may, I'd like to, to read it. So I think it sums up, sums up where we are, really. As a, uh, for me, it's my prayer, it's my hope, and I'd like to pray it over you and again over us. Um, and it's Psalm 91. And as I look back over my life, I just see it. Sometimes it's not until you get a little bit older. And you just go through things, don't you? And you just think, ah, oh, thanks God, yeah, thanks God. It's not until you actually stop, and I mean really stop, and just look back. I think, wow, Lord, how good you are. How faithful you have been. I've got to be honest, I don't know how people get through every day without Jesus in their lives. I so pity the people I work with that don't know Jesus. I long for them to know about Jesus. I love talking about Jesus. He's the only good thing in my life. He is the best thing in my life. So let's just read Psalm 91. I have to stand on the light because my eyes are so poor. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways and lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra and you will trample the great lion and the serpent because he loves me, says the Lord. I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Isn't that great? He is my refuge and my strength.
Gary, shall I hand back over to you? I'd love to pray. Yeah, love to pray. <coughs> Sorry, yeah, good question, yeah. So Sophie, she was in Costa. She was hating it. She's out of that horrible relationship, which was fantastic. She's out of Costa. She's now working in a little primary school, and she's doing Open University, and she has a dream of becoming a classroom teacher, which is just fantastic. She has regular checkups. Her hair's growing back. Her eldest daughter just put some hair extensions in her just on Friday. Um, I'd love to say everything's brilliant and everything's fantastic, and she goes to church and praises God. It isn't like that, you know? But if you opened her computer, if you opened her phone, there's just Bible scriptures everywhere. I feel freer now with my girls than I ever have. Why? Because I know he loves them. I know he loves them. And I know there's some of you in here that you've got grown-up kids that you've been praying for for years. You know, they might have given their lives to Christ when they were this high. I've got a photo on my phone. I came home from church one night, and Linda was sat with my girls, and they were all giving their lives to Christ. And I sneakily took a photo because I wanted to remember it forever. God will never, ever, ever, ever let them go. I don't care what theology you stand on. I don't buy into it. I buy into the God that holds them and never lets them go. They might let go of him. They might be in free fall forever. But one day they will see him face to face. Because I believe once you've given your life to Christ, you're his forever. Because nothing, nothing can take you out of the hands of Christ. Tells us that in scripture. I could get you the scriptures up. You can't undo the work of the cross. So please, if you can take some encouragement, if you've got a loved one, that you've been praying for for years, that one day, you know, they did once give their lives to Christ, and you now look at their lives, and they're like a million miles away from that. That's where we were. Yet I had the, I almost broke down one day when I walked into the hospital room, and I saw all of my daughters with a Bible open doing a Bible study. I thought, what is going on? I never in my life thought I would see that. So in the darkest of moments in my family, they all knew what rock they stood on. And in that darkest of moments, God did something in each one of them. And I'm convinced that that's the same for every single one of you who have got a loved one that once was with Christ and you're worried about him. Please stop worrying. Listen to what God says. I love them. I love them more than you do. You do or you do. They're mine. Get your hands off, is what he says. You can't save anybody. He does that. Just relax. Because God loves them more than you ever will. And he ain't going to let them go. Amen. I hope that encourages someone here. Because I'm going to hold that for the rest of my life. And I'm convinced that there's a day coming when I'll be in glory with my family. Isn't that wonderful? Shall we stand? Can I pray for you? Jesus, I just want to lift up each one in this room right now. 
Jesus, I pray first of all that every single one in this room would be given a fresh sense of how much they are loved by you. I pray that you would whisper into their very innermost being, I love you. I love you. I love you. You're mine. I bought you. I bought you with my own blood. I paid the price on the cross for you. And I love you. Jesus, I pray you would seal that in us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that wonderful truth. I pray it would change the way we see ourselves and the world around us. Pray it would change the way we walk, the way we hold ourselves, the way we walk into a room. Ah, oh, Lord, may we walk like we know that we're sons of the living God. Hallelujah. Jesus. I also want to pray for those that have got loved ones that they almost feel like they've lost them. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for the power of the cross. I thank you, Jesus, that once saved, always saved. I thank you, Jesus, that once you rescue, you rescue for all eternity. I thank you that when you save, you don't let go. I thank you when you save, you don't then unsave. I thank you that when you save, they're yours forever because you have sealed them with your very blood, Jesus. So Lord, I pray for a sense of freedom in that. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.